Thanks, Mana. Well, uh, good morning and welcome to Okan AV. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. Um, it's so exciting, isn't it, when you hear the Bible read well and kind of awesome Hebrew names like Machpala. I couldn't even do it as well. So well done. Uh, that was great. And I studied Hebrew for a year, so there you go. Um, it's a great time to come together as a church and think through what God is saying to us in this section of Genesis. As we come together, this is really the last bit in this series, as as Ethan was saying, as we think through the generations that God has set up in this book of beginnings. So why don't we pray together that as we think through this last in the series, we think through what God would have us do as we respond to Him and how we should live in response to the God who keeps His promises. Let's pray together. Father, as we come today together, as we have heard Your Word read Uh, as we think through the way you've acted throughout history and the way you've shown your love and your faithfulness, we ask that today, that through your spirit, you would comfort us and challenge us to live as people who trust the true and living God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I don't know if you ever had any reoccurring dreams or thoughts as a child, uh, but for me, I had this reoccurring kind of thought that my dad wouldn't make it home from work. I don't know why that was. There was this sense where I always thought that there'd be something that would happen to him. Uh, For my dad, um, his dad died when he was 18. And maybe that played an influence on me. But there's this weird sense where, like, dad would be late coming home, the phone would ring, and I would immediately think, something's happened. I don't know if you've ever had that. I don't know what it was, but it was just there. Now, thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, It will, but it it hasn't happened yet. Have have you ever had that sense of something not great is going to happen? You ever had that sense of, oh, death is just wrong and horrific. It robs us of life. It robs us of relationships and fulfillment and hope. Death makes us question life. What is God doing? Why are we here? What is life all about? As we get to this last section in the story of Genesis, we see that Joseph receives that phone call. He didn't have a phone. But he finds out those words, the news that no one wants to hear. Your father is dying. So come with me to Genesis 48, verse 1. Sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he sent out with two of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Throughout the story of Genesis, we've been seeing these promises that are played out to Abraham, to his son Isaac, and to his son Jacob. These promises that God had given to have many, many descendants, uh, to be a great nation, to have a great land. And we get to this last section, and we don't see many of those coming true. You can imagine as Joseph came to his dad's bed, and his dad, the old man Jacob, sits up. There's a sense of bittersweetness to it. Finally, they've been reunited. Finally, they're in the same area, but now his dad is about to die. And you kind of wonder what's going through Jacob's head as he gathers his strength to sit up. I'd imagine there's unfulfilled dreams. Those promises that God had given him, unrealized hopes. We hear him speak of the sorrow of losing his wife, the love of his life, Rachel. That promised land to Abraham, that that nation and blessing hasn't happened. He's in Egypt. He's away. His wife, Rachel, is dead. He's seeing his son, the prized son that he loves so much, possibly for the last time. And you've got to wonder, why has Jacob lived? What's going through his head? What is life about? Then we hear his 
final words. 48 verse 8. When Israel, or Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons that God has given me here. So Jacob said, Bring them to me, and I will bless them. There's a sense in which you see Jacob as the old grandfatherly type figure, don't you? On his bed there, wanting to see these children that have been had to his son, Joseph. And he brings them in and he wants to bless them. Now remember, Jacob had been one that desperately wanted to receive the blessing of his father, Isaac, and did all sorts of things to deceive his brother so he might get the blessing. And now that had turned around. He was the one passing on a blessing to the children of Joseph. Joseph takes the older of his two and places him at Jacob's right hand. He's the oldest. He's the one who should uh, get the right hand of blessing. The one that is the, the position of prominence, the most important. That should go to Manasseh. But Jacob does something very odd. As Joseph puts Manasseh on uh, Jacob's right and Ephraim on Jacob's left, Jacob does something that I can't hold my iPad to do. He crosses his hands. Like, what's he doing? He's going to bless these children, but he's blessing the one who's on his right with his left hand and the one who's on his left with his right hand. It's not some kind of move where you can do that, whatever the dance is that you're supposed to do. Apparently, there's a video of me somewhere doing that, but we won't talk about that here. It came out at the Uni Church camp. And so he's actually here blessing the wrong way round. A little later, we see... Um, Joseph be like, oh, dad, this is all wrong and try to move his hands, but he won't let his hands be moved. He says, the younger will be blessed. What is with that? Why does this happen here at this last moment? Is there something going on? Well, Jacob's giving us a hint of the way God works. God's blessing, his grace, his undeserved gift to us. The way he pours that out is not what we expect. God does not work in the way that we expect. And as you look back over Genesis, you see that. It's always the younger who ends up being the one who is the one who is at the top. God works in different ways through different people. His, his love is so different from ours. He is so wild. Jacob goes wild with a cross-handed blessing. That's kind of what's happening. And Joseph here, he, he, he's kind of baffled. He doesn't understand what's going on. But the principle behind all of this is a principle that we see clearly throughout the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, Paul says these words. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. As we stand back and look at the events of Genesis, we see the events of Jacob's blessing showing forth that God does not work in the way that we think. He doesn't work in the way that the world thinks, where the oldest is king and the youngest serves the oldest. He works in a wild and radical way. And that gives us great hope, because we see people throughout this whole story of Genesis who aren't what they ought to be, but still receive the blessing and grace of God. No one is beyond God's goodness. God often works through the baddest, the proudest, the meanest man or woman in town. And thank God for that. That his blessing does not depend on what we are like or on human customs or traditions. There's a wildness to God's mercy. And you see that now played out as he invites these children to be his own sons. Have a look with me at verse 15 of chapter 48. Then he, Jacob, blessed Joseph and said... 
The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all harm. May he bless these boys. And may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow to be numerous within the land. What happens here? The blessing doesn't go to the favored son, Joseph. In fact, God invites Manasseh and Ephraim, sorry, Jacob invites Manasseh and Ephraim to be his own adopted sons, to be ones who will be one of the the children of Israel. You see, even on his deathbed, the man who seemed at first glance frail and weak and without hope is a man whose hope is strong and wants to see this hope played out through these children. What is it that keeps Jacob going right now? What is it that says to, to, to Joseph, no, I will not uncross my hands? It's the promise of God. It's the promise of being part of this family. It's the promise of God that drives all that Jacob does. It's the promise of God that he orients his life around. And it's the promise of God that he sees as the most important reality. This is what he's thinking on his deathbed. Is he thinking about, I haven't had all these things happen. My life wasn't lived to its fullness. Is he bitter and twisted? No. He's blessing these children. He's inviting them in. All that has happened to Jacob has been part of the plan of the God who shepherded him through life. What's interesting is that that's the first use of the word shepherd for God. That God shepherded Jacob. He walked alongside him. Even in his stupidity, even through those times of hardship, God shepherded him. And so Jacob's hope is in God. Absolute confidence in God's word at this point. Absolute confidence in the promise given to Abraham and that it will happen. And then Jacob calls together his other sons, not just Joseph, but the other 11. Genesis 49 verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather around and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Jacob then outlines the the blessings he has for his children. The blessings that he deceivously grasped from his father Isaac. For the oldest three, it's not great news. Uh, they've been disqualified from any leadership in this people of Israel. Reuben had slept with Jacob's concubine and, and in Jacob's words, defiled his father's bed. Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, went on a killing rampage, remember, in Shechem. And they defiled the sign of circumcision and basically took out a whole town. So the top three are gone. And you're like, whoa, this is, this is, this is different. Again, this is God's wild grace. He's working through other ways. And then in these blessings that you get in chapter 49 that come out of the mouth of Jacob, we come to Judah and we find Judah's hope. Judah's hope. 49 verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is... A young lion, my son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the people belong to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. What's going on here? You're going to hear this and you're like, wow, if my dad said that to me, I don't know what would be going on. I'm like, maybe, you know, he's not in the best state at this point. And maybe you could think that. But actually, these are astonishing words. Astonishing words that he says about Judah. When you remember who Judah was, he was the one that sold his brother into slavery. The entrepreneurial wisdom that he came up with and said, yeah, let's get money for it as well. He was the one that slept with the wife of his deceased son, Tamar, while he was thinking that he was sleeping with a prostitute. And she had a child through him. Judah was an arch sinner like all the other brothers above him, like all the brothers. But unlike them, Scripture records that there's been a change in Judah's life. The infamy he had with Tamar had led to a deep humiliation of his soul. He said, she is more righteous than I at that moment. There was a recognition that he was a sinner at that point. But then, remember it was Judah who offered himself as Benjamin's substitute. Don't take Benjamin, Joseph. We didn't know it was Joseph. You know, um, Prime Minister of Egypt. Don't take Benjamin. Take me instead. I'll die in his place. But Judah could never take the place of another. He could never take the place of another. There'd only be one in human history who could properly take the place of another. And that would be the king who rules with God's scepter. The one they call the Lion of Judah. Jesus is the one that Jacob is pointing to when he talks about the blessings that are to come to the tribe of Judah. Judah's hope would be Israel's hope, humanity's hope. And while God saved humanity at one point in a short period of time through Joseph in Egypt, when he provided food for them and provided that seven years of kind of food when there was famine, it would ultimately be the Lion of Judah, Jesus, who would save humanity from the ultimate enemy of sin and death. This blessing here sets us up with an expectation of what is to come, of who is to come, and how great that hope is. It expands our pictures and our hope of what is to happen. This whole idea of vineyard and donkeys and wine and white teeth, like what what is going on there? It's a picture that there will be a time when this one in the tribe of Judah will come and bring in such an abundance of grapes of of goodness, that the promised king will tether his donkey to the grapevine. And rather than the the viticulturalist kind of going, oh, these are the choice grapes. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. The donkey can eat these. There's so much wine, so much grapes, so much blessing, so much abundance. They're like, give the best choice grapes to the donkey. It's fine. The promised king will have no concern over some donkey eating it, uh, helping itself to the vintage grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, white teeth, whiter than milk. It's a picture here in picture language of his strength and power, whoever this one is. Vines are used as hitching posts for his donkey. That water will be used as wash water. They'll wash their, their clothes in, vine when this one, in, in wine when this one comes. It's kind of like, you know, we go and we worry about the price of water when it comes in, or hot water. Like, oh, it's, it's expensive because it you know, it costs electricity to heat up and we wash our clothes in hot water. That's a, you know, it's pretty out there. They're saying, when he comes, we'll use wine. That's like, go for it. You know, it's the kind of idea, the streets will be paved with gold. Wine will be flowing. There's this amazing picture of when this one comes. This week, I got something that I've never understood before. I was thinking through when Jesus came in John chapter 2. 
And we see a carpenter from Nazareth, who's a descendant of Judah. And the first kind of thing we see him do as the promised king, perhaps, is what? Do you remember? Water into wine. He's at a wedding in Canaan. They've run out of the good stuff. There's no more wine left. They come to him and his first public sign is that he turns water into wine. And suddenly when that happens, well, come with me, have a look what happens. John 2 verse 9. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign, sign of what? In Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed him. I've always wondered, why was that the first sign that he did? I thought it might have been something about bringing in abundance, but it's because it's fulfilling Jacob's blessing to Judah. This is Judah's hope. Here is the king who will rule forever with a scepter forever, the one who turns water to wine, who brings in abundant blessing. He's here, and when the disciples see that, they get it. Water to wine, this is him. This is the promised king. The day had come, the Messiah was here, and that day at Cana, that wedding, was one of exuberant abundance. A taste of the eternal day when wine will be as common as water, and the scepter-bearing Messiah from the tribe of Judah will come and rule forever. Judah has great hope and great blessing from God. And then the other brothers get blessed as well. But their blessing is just nothing compared to Judah's hope. Come with me to 49, 29. And we'll hear then some of Jacob's hope in his last words. 49, 29. Then Jacob commanded them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in verse 33. When Jacob had finished instructing his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and died. He was gathered to his people. It's just so matter of fact. He proclaims these blessings for his children. He talks about what will happen. He talks about Judah being the one that will rule. And then the thing that he says, his final words are, make sure my bones go back to Canaan, and then pops his feet up in bed and dies. No fanfare, nothing else. What is his hope? What allows him to finish life this way? There's this kind of confidence behind him, a kind of security that's there. What is that? It got me thinking. If I could choose my final words to say to loved ones and friends, what, what would I say? What, what would you say? I've often um, thought about the idea of recording a video. It's a little bit morbid, but I've often thought it'd be great to record a video to be played at my funeral. They kind of said things to my kids that I could say that I loved them and cared for them and I could point out things that would be important for people to hear. I've often thought it'd be a great idea to do and I've heard of people doing it. But the thing that stopped me uh, foolishly is I'm like, well, if I do that, maybe God will end my life sooner. Something helpful to give to people. As weird as that sounds, just real-life confession. So I haven't yet, just, just in case you're wondering. Well, what advice would you say? How would you be? Confident? Scared? Excited? What words would you choose as your final words and your final actions? 
Jacob, after pronouncing these blessings, doesn't speak of love, doesn't speak of his regrets. He leaves only one final instruction. Take my bones to Canaan. Why is that so important? Why is that so important? Bury me in the land of Canaan. He drew his feet into bed and died. Now, I've not been around many people dying. But for Jacob, this just seems so calm. Why is that? Well, it's because Jacob's hope is not in this life. His hope is not in the here and the now. His hope is in something that is to come, something greater, something that God had promised him. His hope is that he will be gathered with his fathers, that God's promises to make this into a great nation and a resurrection will happen. He has a hope that he will be gathered to them and so wants to be buried with Abraham and with Isaac back in Canaan, back in the land that God promised him. He wants to rest his hope, not in life now, but in the promises of the true and living God. That's what makes him tick. That's what makes him so secure. God and his promises. But then we hear of Joseph's response. Joseph's response to this moment, which is horrible as a son. You know, the only tears that are recorded in the life of Joseph were not for himself. They were for the plight of his brothers and now the loss of his father. Look at Genesis 50 verse 1. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. Israel was the other name for Jacob. They did that because that was what the... Uh, Egyptian custom was. Uh, You'd spend time embalming them to preserve someone. You would take out all the organs and put them in special sauces and spices and kind of wrap them up and mummify them. And that's what they did. They gave Jacob a kind of a Pharaoh's burial. (laughs) When you see what the funeral is like, you kind of start to stand back and go, whoa, this is a state funeral. The father of the man who Egypt owed so much to gets this massive funeral. I reckon it's bigger than Henry and Megan's wedding, right? That was just, there's, there's kind of, you look at it, the, Egypt's elite are there. All the elders from Egypt, you know, all their Egyptian customs, they're there. Then you've got Jacob's family, kind of all the, the bearded Hebrews. They're kind of there hanging out. Then there's the military as well. There's chariots and horses. And all of them take this embalmed body of Jacob back to Canaan, exactly where he'd been asking to go back to where God's promises said he would end up. And it must have been a huge procession. Imagine it. All of the elite of Egypt. And then all of these Jews in their Jewish ways kind of tramping out. And then the whole military of of Egypt. Imagine seeing that. Imagine the other nations around going, what is going on? What are they saying? They're saying, wow, that guy must be special. Who is that? That is the guy whose God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and his name was Jacob. And the nations around start to ring with the promises of Genesis 12, where God is bringing about blessing through this nation to all nations. You're seeing Egypt blessed through them, and the the echoes ring out. I will make you great. Oh, and great Jacob was. 
I will give you a land. And he was returning to that land. All nations will be blessed through you. There's this moment of a sight of sights. You're like, wow, what is God doing? God is doing a dress rehearsal. You're like, what? God at this point is not just saying, look how great Jacob is. He's doing a dress rehearsal for his promises that we played out in the book of Exodus. They leave and go by the same route, we're told, as Israel did when they leave Exodus 400 years later. They go out and they are doing a dress rehearsal, this time with Egypt on their side, as a picture of what it could have been if Pharaoh, the Pharaoh to come didn't reject the true and living God. But now they're giving a dress rehearsal for God's ultimate glory to be shown. Well, not quite ultimate, second ultimate. The salvation from Egypt that would come. The funeral points forward to the future hope for this nation. The hope that had been spoken of, they will spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. But again, God will bring them out and he will fulfill his promises. But unlike his father, Jacob, who had made Joseph promise to take his bones back to Canaan, Joseph's death is contrasted as a little different. Joseph, in his death, was content to have people take his bones back to Canaan whenever the exodus happened, whenever that future point would be. There was no grand funeral procession recorded for Joseph, although it probably was there, you'd imagine. We read simply at Joseph's death of his hope. Genesis 50, 26. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. That's it. We've had 10 chapters of the life of Joseph. And we just get, Joseph died, 110, they embalmed him, placed him in a coffin in Egypt. It's just like done. Like it or not, what happened to Joseph was he was embalmed as well, placed in a coffin. Literally, it's probably some sort of sarcophagus, like those that are used in Egypt, that high-ranking officials would have. Now, the coffin then would have been placed somewhere or seen as like an eternal shrine to that person. But the Israelites would see Joseph's death as something very, very different. Joseph's death was a temporary monument to the coming exodus, to what was to come. Because Joseph, like his father Jacob, also hoped in the promises of God, bringing about his purpose, bringing them into a land and fulfilling the promises that he's given them. The shriveled, colorless lips that lay in this sarcophagus, wrapped with folds of linen, had left this as their last utterance. Genesis 50, verse 24. Listen to Joseph's last words. I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am about to die. But God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, to believing hearts, those bones that were in that kind of mummified thing spoke of great hope that was to come. A great hope that God would fulfill his promises. With the passing of somewhere near 30 generations, Pharaoh would let Israel go. And do you know what Moses did? Moses and his people removed the sarcophagus that he would have been in bearing Joseph's bones and as they bore his bones along being chased by a different pharaoh a pillar of cloud shaded them by day and the pillar of fire illuminated them at night God is faithful to his promises 
He brings Joseph home. Question for us, though, as we see this end of this great book of promises, is what is our hope? What is our hope? If we're honest, we'll all face that day where it will be our last. Where we will need to think through what life is about. We'll have to work out what is next and what we say to others. Some of us will get a chance to work that out. Others won't. What is our hope? How do we live with the confidence that Joseph and Jacob had, where they can put their feet into their bed and die with some sort of security and a hope that seems so strong? Well, I hope you can see that throughout all of Genesis, the idea of hope is a, is a ringing bell. See, jo- Joseph and Jacob represent two ways of living for us. On the one hand, there's Jacob. Jacob's life had been different from Joseph's. Uh, Jacob had been the continual traveler, the sojourner. His life had never really settled. His life had been about comfort and, uh, sorry, has been about conflict and discomfort and difficulty. He had a hard life. Famine, son die, other son taken away, other sons complete drop kicks, doing stupid things, making his name horrible in the, the nations around them. Life had not been easy for Jacob. It had to work for the love of his wife and then tricked and then wait longer and work again. But Joseph, yes, there'd been some hardship at the start. Yes, there had been difficult times, but things had generally, once those times were sorted, been all right for him. Since being dragged out of prison, his life had been comfortable. He'd been set up as the second in charge of all Egypt. He's reunited with his family. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who seems to have power. He married a wife who's born him children. There doesn't seem to be any issues having children there at all. Unlike Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Tamar. He's experienced wealth and security. He's lived a fairly settled existence. And for such people, hope is not easy. When things are going well and life is running out pretty well, it's so easy for us to go, what, what hope do I need? My life is great now. I'm living it up. I'm living for the here and now and it is great. Hope is not easy when things are okay, when material things are plentiful and life is comfortable. We find it so much easier to trust in ourselves. And the question you've got in the life of Joseph is, will he end up like his father Jacob or will he end up like the Egyptians? Will he become so Egyptianified? that he forgets the promises that are there. Thankfully, we see in his last words that he didn't. He worked hard against that, to hope in the same thing his father hoped in. The book of Hebrews puts Joseph and Jacob together in their hope. Have a look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. What does the writer of Hebrews remind us? (laughs) That both of them were fixed on the promise of God. That is what gave them comfort. That is what gave them hope. That is what drove them to their death happily, secure, What is it for us? 
For our hope is not about physical descendants. Our hope is not about a land in the same way it was for Abraham and his descendants. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, have a look at it. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So the New Testament comes along and the line of Judah turns up and we see Jesus expand and fulfill the hopes that are promised to Abraham with a vision that is far bigger than what Joseph and Jacob could see, but it's the same vision that they trusted in. Paul says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, for the here and the now, we should be pitied more than anyone. Friends, do not think that following Jesus now means life will be easy. We've seen that in Genesis. Do not think that following Jesus now means that we will get blessings now, although there are some, yes, but also hardships. But be very, very clear. The central call of a Christian is to live not for this life, but the next. It's not to hope in this life only, but in the life that is to come. See, Jesus tells us that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's hope was not for this world. It was not just about that little bit of land, all these promises of what they would be like just here in Israel. It was far, far bigger. Listen to this. Matthew 8, verse 10. Let's hear the words of Jesus on what is about to happen for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their hope, and Joseph's too, was not for this life, but the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? And what he's saying here is that many will come, and you're hearing the allusions to that promise of Abraham, to Abraham. Many nations will come and be blessed through Abraham and his descendants, particularly Jesus. And you're seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That is what we get to look forward to if we trust in Jesus. The promise given to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus, the Lion of Judah, and it's given to those who trust him. Listen to Paul in Galatians 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, referring to his seed. He doesn't say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In other words, the promises given to Abraham were actually given to Abraham and his seed, meaning they're fulfilled in Jesus. There is only one seed, namely Christ. Verse 27. For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If you trust in Jesus, then he has died in your place. He has taken the penalty that you and I deserve so that we can be forgiven and stand firm on that last day before God. There is no greater security than that. I want to tell you about a friend of mine who was in the last church I was at. He's a guy that uh, had grown up in a fairly rough background. He'd been a bit of a biker. He'd been involved with some gangs and all sorts of stuff and they were riding in these Harleys on the road and thought they owned the road. And he talks through, uh, for him, the joy that it was to become a Christian. 
his parents, he came from a Catholic background. His dad called him up one day and said, if you really think you're born again, uh, then I want nothing to do with you anymore. You're not part of our family. We're Catholic, and if you think this is different, then don't use my last name. And he said, I, I couldn't believe it. And that kind of pushed him then to go, Am I, can I actually trust these words of Jesus? Is this future my hope? Joe taught me all sorts of things. Uh, he taught me about forgiveness as his wife went off with his best mate. And they uh, slept together, then his wife married his best mate. And he had to work through the forgiveness of what that was like. And he said, and I believed him, he's, he's this big guy with tats all over him and a big beard and rides a Harley, right? You got the picture? He said, I wanted to kill that guy. And I believed him. There was every sense in which he got put in, into jail because he kept texting his wife going, we need to talk, we need to talk. And she put out a restraining order and then they put him in jail because he crossed that because he's like, we need to think through what this is as Christians. And then he talked from the front of church as we were looking at 1 John about how forgiveness helped him to realize he had to let go. He had to stop the resentment that was there because Jesus had forgiven him. And so he had, had to go to his wife with his daughter and he gave his wife a bunch of flowers and said, I release you, I forgive you. And I'm like that, wow. You kind of see his forgiveness and the way God had kind of done that. A few years later, he uh, actually kind of becomes friends with his best mate who went off with his wife. And that guy kind of had been a Christian, had kind of walked away, and he goes, look, you know what? We need to meet up and read the Bible together because we need to make sure that Jesus is central. So then he's meeting with his best mate. <laughs> and they're meeting together, reading the Bible weekly where he has forgiven him. And you just see this picture of the guy that's run off with his wife he is now meeting with. That is forgiveness. And you're like, this guy gets what it is to be a Christian and then gets diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Joe died four years ago, about 55. And I want to read to you the last post that he had, because I want you to see the hope that he had as he posted this on Facebook. Good morning, my friends. May God's blessing be poured over your lives this morning. I've now reached palliative care. That last move before you take that final breath in your lungs and face the true God. Here's where the rubber hits the road for me. Is what I truly believe in Christ solid as a rock or have I just been playing a game? I'm happy to share. I'm excited. I've been a Christian for over 25 years. I've spent many long talks and prayers and time with God where he's taught me some of life's greatest lessons. He's performed miracles before me. He's turned this angry boy's heart into joy. A rebellious heart into peace, an angry boy's life into happiness, my hate into love and my unforgiveness into true joy. Slowly I walked to the end of my road, waiting patiently for my God's calling, excited and humble at the same time. I love you, Lord, not long now, and I'll surrender my soul to you and rejoice in you forever. Because of the line of Judah, his future is secure. And he could swing his feet into that bed and die knowing his relationship with God is secure. Jesus has paid it all. Let me ask each of us today, what is your hope? As we all consider the future, is our hope the here and the now? Or is our hope what is to come? Is our hope what Jacob and Joseph were looking forward to that day when the Lion of Judah comes back and puts things right. 
Is your hope for the place that Jesus promises when our bodies, our physical bodies in their weakness and decay are done away with and we're given bodies that won't decay? Is your hope for the day that we see Jesus as he really is face to face? Is your hope for the day that the sin and the flesh and the devil and all things that are wrong and evil will be a thing of the past, not the present? Is your hope for a day when tears and pain and suffering and aches and illnesses will be done away with? We are a people who live for the future. And that means that this world ought not be our desire. The things of this world, while we enjoy them here and now, are not what we are to live for. We are to live for the day our bones are clothed with flesh and pulled back into the new kingdom when Jesus returns. We don't care what happens now, we care then when Jesus comes back. We're to live now as temporary residents with our citizenship in heaven. For some of us, life will be physically disjointed and full of badness and flaws. Or others, it'll be settled and successful, full of good days. But no matter which side of that Joseph and Jacob divide we are on, we must make sure we live for that other country with our eyes set in heaven for that day that Jesus comes back as temporary residents of this world. Reflecting on the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, this is what the author of Hebrews says. Have a look. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Let me ask you right now, do you have confidence to die well? Do you have confidence that your hope is in Jesus? Do you have confidence to live a life now where we don't store up treasures for the here and now, but treasures forever, seeing people in the kingdom? Do you have the confidence to live radically now in a way that the world around us sees as weak and stupid, but we've been captured by the wild grace of God and we want to share that hope with the world around us? Do you have the confidence to do that? Will you depend on the God who works all things for his sake, no matter what the ups and downs of life bring, whether that be joy or sorrow? And I don't just mean notionally, yes, I'll depend on God. I mean really, on your knees. Friends, we want to be a church that is so captured by what Jesus has done that we live radically in the way we use our lives, in the way we use our our money, our time, our intellect, the opportunities that are before us. We live not for now, but for the day Jesus comes back and all things are put right. What will that mean for you practically? What areas of your life do you need to put under this lordship of Christ where you go, I'm living for then? Are there areas that you think you're living for just blessing now? Yes, we can enjoy the world around us. But at what expense for eternity? Over the next few months, we'll be talking as a church about a church building. 
about us moving forward to think through how we can see a, a place set up that's kind of here for the long haul. The church building is not just a nice thing for us here and now. It's really, we want to build a training hospital. A training hospital that sees sick sinners come in and hear the news of Jesus and then be trained up and equipped as, as, as a teaching hospital and then sent out across this city, this country and the globe proclaiming the news that gives life, pointing people to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that'll mean we need to make radical moves. That'll mean we need to invite our friends and, and put relationships on the line as we keep talking to people around who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to make radical moves with our finances, with our time, with our energy. But if we're living for the kingdom, whether it be this building that we're trying to see happen or other Christian ministry initiatives to see more and more people trusting in Jesus, the question God asks us through the book of Genesis is this, will you trust me? Will you trust I am in control and will you live radically for the promises that I have offered you? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you are the God that gives us confidence. And because Jesus died in our place and rose again, that we can have hope that death is defeated, that sin is defeated. And we can stand washed white as snow in the blood of your son. We ask today that you would keep fixing our eyes on that future hope. That like Jacob and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac, we might live looking forward to the day that your promises are fully, fully fulfilled. When Jesus comes back and all things are right. So Lord, carry us through our days. Fix our eyes on what is to come. Let us run the race with endurance, we ask. Let us be radical and bold, and confident, not in our own abilities, but in the God who always keeps his promises. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.